Before we get into this episode, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love our show, please scroll down to the review section of your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating. If you have a few more seconds, please also leave us a review telling us what you like most about our show. We read every single one of these and we appreciate them so much. This will also help us grow and get into the ears of those who love true crime and food as much as you do. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Dietetics After Dark, your source for food-related crime, scandal, and fraud. Hey, Becca, how are you? Hi, Sarah. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well, and I'm so excited to tell you everything I've researched for today. Same to you. Honestly, today is such a big episode that I almost feel like we should just dive in right now. I think so, too. Although I think every episode we do is a big episode. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's always bigger than I think it's going to be. For sure. And I do think that this one's going to be especially lengthy. So (laughs) yeah, let's just dive in. Okay, perfect. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a registered dietitian in your area. All the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes. This podcast may contain coarse language and mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. This is an independently produced podcast. If you could rate, review, and subscribe, that would really help us out, and we will be forever grateful. So today we are going to cover some of the history behind cooking itself, and then we'll dive into the wild story of a toxin that was on everyone's favorite cooking gadget, and that's Teflon. Teflon. Um, Yep. But before we get into it, I feel like we should dedicate this episode to one of our Mm -hmm. listeners who sent in the idea to cover this topic, and that is Gran Aficionado. So this one goes out to you. Yes, great topic idea. I'm so excited to learn. I actually don't know too much. Amazing. Let's do it. 
Okay, so before I start, I need to know what your favorite kitchen gadget is. Ooh, good question. I know, tough question. That's a really good question. I feel like I have so many. <laughs> Things are popping into my head. Can I pick more than one? Yeah. Okay, one that I didn't know that I needed or wanted, mm-hmm. garlic press. Yes, that's mine. Yeah, it's a good one. Well, it's like, I have two as well. Okay, Another go. one, spiralizer. Oh, yeah, that's so a good one. So fun to spiralize veggies, put them in mm-hmm. salads and things like that, and you can get one for like like $5. They're pretty cheap. Totally. That's a great one. And then I think, obviously, I would probably have to say a frying pan. A frying pan. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Foreshadowing. Yeah. I was going to say garlic press is is such a game changer. I use it daily and like... Before, when I was chopping garlic, your fingers smell like garlic for days. It's just not great. So a garlic press is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And a, a good blender. Oh, yeah. That is a good one. Like a okay. high-powered blender changed my smoothie game, my sauce game, my soup game. It's it's really good. That is good. Can I have something, like, really embarrassing to admit? Yeah. Go ahead. I love, I love when my hands smell like garlic. <laughs> sniffing your garlic fingers. <laughs> Okay, so today I am going to give you a brief history of cooking and tell you all about how kitchen technology changed life as we know it, especially for women. I'm so excited. So for the vast majority of human history, the only way to cook was over an open fire. Humans have been using fire to cook their meals for nearly 2 million years. And learning to cook our food is actually thought to be one of the most important evolutionary steps for humankind. Hmm. Not only did it allow us to make our food taste better, but it also makes it safer, more digestible, increases nutrient availability, and increases the energy density. Amazing. Let me explain. (laughs) So cooking actually helps make our food safer because it reduces the number of parasites, bacteria, and in some cases, even toxins. It helps to soften tough fibers in foods, release more flavors, and help speed the process of chewing and digestion, which actually allowed humans with maybe smaller teeth or weaker jaws, like children and seniors, to eat more food. (laughs) It allows you to consume more energy-dense foods and reduces the amount of time required to digest those foods. And this extra nutrition and energy actually helped our ancestors spend less time searching for food, which, in, which entails expending calories, right? Mm-hmm. And less time chewing through tough plants, which actually also requires quite a bit of calories for a lower caloric payoff. Makes right. sense, right? So you're chewing on raw foods all the time. They're usually typically less calorie dense, but when they're cooked, you can eat more easily, get those nutrients. It's great. I love cooked food. Absolutely. I automatically think of celery. Yeah, like, celery is a, a perfect example. Raw versus cooked in like a soup or something. Yeah, so totally. Different. Or like spinach, for example. Mm-hmm. A bag of raw spinach, uh, first of all, kind of, I don't want to eat that <laughs> pretty much ever. <laughs> but if you add that into a pan and cook it down, you, you can eat a whole bag of spinach in like three bites. It's crazy. With lots of garlic. <laughs> With lots of garlic. Okay, so... Studies have actually shown that individuals who follow completely raw food diets typically have very low BMIs, and up to 50% of women who eat exclusively raw foods become so malnourished that they develop amenorrhea, which is a, a lack of menstruation, which is no joke. Amenorrhea is actually 
your body saying that it does not have enough energy to support a pregnancy and basically shutting that system off until proper nourishment can be achieved. Mm. So this happens even if the individual following a raw diet is technically consuming enough calories because research suggests that we don't fully extract the same amount of energy or protein from raw foods. So even if you're ingesting, you know, lots of food, a fair amount of calories, that doesn't mean your body is able to use it properly. So before cooking existed, humans were eating raw. That's pretty much all there was, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So cooking completely changes the amount, type, and density of nutrition that humans are able to get from food. And around the time that cooking kind of came into the picture, we actually see a significant increase in brain size. No way. That's cool. Yes. So the theory, which is proposed by anthropologist Richard Rangham, is that with cooking, humans now have energy available to develop our intellect and our brains. And having a big brain is great, but <laughs> you would know. <laughs> I, I would know one of the biggest out there. <laughs> um, but it's also energetically very expensive. So the brain actually requires more energy for its size than any other organ. And so it makes sense that around the same time we see the brain increase in size, we also see this increase in energy availability thanks to cooking. Okay. And this makes so much sense to me. Like mm -hmm. just thinking about when we're studying and whatnot, mm -hmm. how I often crave more snacks and more food, I feel like I'm probably exerting a lot more energy. It's that brain power. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so not only do we have greater nutrition and energy availability with cooking, of course, we can now spend time thinking of better ways to hunt, to live, to develop culture, connect with others, create art, and develop early technologies, all these things that make us human thanks to cooking. So around the same time that our brains grew, and this is approximately 1.8 million years ago, fossil evidence also suggests that our teeth and our digestive tract decreased in size. So our heads literally got bigger and our waists actually shrunk because we needed less physical space to digest raw food and our teeth didn't need to be as powerful. This is, again, a theory. It's so cool. Yeah. Honestly, I hope this is real. <laughs> I Well, it's kind of hard to know for sure mm -hmm. <laughs> because it's tough to trace these things back millions and millions of years. But the theory seems pretty solid in my eyes anyways. Mm-hmm. It so, checks out too. <laughs> this could suggest that our Homo erectus ancestors actually started eating softer and higher quality foods around this time, which further supports the idea that we started eating cooked foods around this time. So like I said, there's some debate around when humans actually gained control of fire and started using it regularly, mostly because it's so dang long ago. And it's hard to find two million year old uh, fire pits, <laughs> believe it or not. But estimates typically range from about a million to two million years ago. So cooking freed up a lot of our time. For reference, the great apes, who eat mostly bamboo shoots and stems, spend about four to seven hours a day just chewing. Wow. <laughs> I know. And that doesn't leave a lot of room for intellectual development. Studies have also shown that chimpanzees, our closest relative, have many of the traits that early humans had that could indicate a capacity for cooking. 
So, for example, chimpanzees actually do show a strong preference for the taste of cooked food. They've shown that they have the patience to wait for food to cook. Like, they would choose to wait for cooked food over immediate raw food. Hmm. So interesting. And that they can plan for and transport foods to a cooking site. Wow. So can they cook? I think with human help. (laughs) (laughs) But... It was, yeah, the coolest study. It's linked in the references, but I'll also send it to you because I was like, this is so cool. Yeah, I'd like to see that for sure. So what we do know is that when humans gained control of fire, it was a total game changer. Fire could keep us warm. It could provide light. It could keep predators away. It could also act as a weapon against them if needed. It allowed us to create more advanced hunting tools by melting and molding materials. And it provided a method for cooking food that led to significant changes in both diet and behavior. One of the biggest changes in in behavior was congregating around the fire and sharing meals. So by bringing people together to eat, cooking around a fire actually laid the groundwork for human society. Today, this this shocked me, which I guess, I don't know, seems Like, it shouldn't have shocked me, but it did. Mm -hmm. According to the World Health Organization, nearly 3 billion people worldwide still cook over fires. Does that surprise you? That is crazy. Uh, I don't know if that surprises me. I've never really thought about this question before. It makes sense. But when I first read 3 billion cooking over fire, like, how have you ever cooked over a fire? Um, Camping. Yeah, just camping. Definitely Me camping. Too. Uh, mm-hmm. My dad, my dad used to have this this like contraption that you'd put like two pieces of bread in and pie filling. Oh, cool. And then oh, you'd I'd cook it over the fire, and you'd get these little mini pies. Uh, but we used to cook most of our our food when we were camping over a fire. Like mm-hmm. Oatmeal. Can you imagine doing pasta. that every day? No, no, I can't. <laughs> it's so time consuming. One time, Jeff and I went camping, and. We are not super familiar with cooking over a fire. It's a totally different experience. Like mm-hmm. the to get the fire to the perfect heat, it's it's challenging. But we did like we put we did corn cobs, we wrapped them in tin foil, we just stuck them over the fire. And then we did portobello mushrooms too, and we wrapped them in tin foil and put them like <laughs> in the fire basically mm-hmm. on the grill, but like really close to the fire. And then I went to check on them, I don't know, a couple minutes later. It felt like no time had gone by at all. And I went to check on the mushrooms and they had they were gone. Like, <laughs> they were just ash. There was nothing. Like I opened up the tinfoil and they were big portobello mushrooms and they were just reduced to nothing. Oh my goodness. So clearly my fire was like so hot. That Such hot fire. Cremated the creminis. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, barbecuing would not count. Barbecuing, correct? no, it doesn't count as a fire is technically fire. It is technically fire, but you're typically using like some sort of starter fluid and gas to ignite the fire. It's not like Okay. So we're fire, talking fire. wood burning, wood fire pits, fireplaces, fire pits. Okay. Yeah. Because okay, gas gotcha. I'll say this later. I'll say it right now actually. <laughs> not until the end of the 1800s did gas stoves become popular. Okay. So, cooking over open fires, open fires or Wood fire stoves. Okay. Until relatively very recently. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in terms of more modern cooking, up until about 150 years ago, most North American households used a kitchen fire and maintaining that fire around the clock was essential. So before the invention of matches in 1826, 
The housekeeper or usually the woman of the house would use a heavy metal lid and they would put it over smoldering embers at night to keep them hot enough until morning. And then as soon as you wake up, that would be like step number one, kickstart that fire again. And maintaining this fire would be like an ongoing activity throughout the day. I And one source I read uh, said that in the pioneer days, if your kitchen fire ended up going out completely, you would have to walk to your nearest neighbor's house, get some of their hot embers and bring them back to your house to start your fire again. That's <laughs> so much effort just yeah. to, you know, breakfast, lunch and dinner maintaining this, this fireplace. So as you can imagine, cooking over a fire took some serious time and it sounds like more of an art form. So you really had to regulate the temperature and like get to know your fire and put whatever amount of wood in and then gauge the temperature of the oven with just your hand, like just to like kind of put it near and see what temperature it was at and then adjust that temperature by either putting more wood on or taking some off. And it's just a lot of work. It sounds like it sounds like the sourdough starter of the 1800s. Oh my gosh. That's put so and much love into start, it. So much love. Yeah. But even worse, because you probably have a sourdough starter and a fire pit. So much going on. So much going on. So there were stone and brick ovens in ancient Rome and ancient Egypt, and cast iron ovens were really popular as early as the 1700s. And so a, a cast iron oven was when you could actually have one fire source in the cast iron stove and control the temperature on the stove top. So you're kind of getting closer to a modern stove, but it's still run by fire inside. Okay. So by the end of the 1800s, like I said, gas stoves were pretty popular and electric stoves were, were invented towards the end of the 1800s, but um, only used really for hotels or large scale operations. So In news that is shocking to probably no one, the burden of cooking and cleaning has historically and currently fallen primarily on the women of the house. And the rise of different household technologies actually played a pretty significant role in women's liberation. So I don't want to minimize the decades of activism and fighting for basic human rights done by early feminists and the suffragettes for things like the right to vote and own property and have access to education and contraception and all these incredible things. There's so much more to women's rights than household appliances. But the fact is that household technology freed up a ton of our time, which ultimately played a role in allowing women to enter the workforce. So it's actually interesting, and I wasn't going to say this in my part, so I may as well say it now because I was I found this image that I was thinking we could include in our Instagram post for this episode. Yeah, and it's a woman with like a Teflon pan scrubbing mm-hmm. it, and it says, "What a way to start married life! There are better things in life than being married to a sink." So it's essentially playing on that. Yeah, <laughs> spend less time at your sink, do other things, happy oh my life. God. <laughs> That's funny. I eye rolled for those. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so in the 1800s, the typical mother worked constantly at home and had an average of six children. In 1900, this is only 121 years ago, the average household spent 58 hours a week on housework. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Including meal prep, laundry, and washing dishes. And by 1975, only 75 years later, the average household spent about 18 hours a week. So huge difference in less than a century. So I calculated how much time I probably spend on cooking and cleaning in a week. Nice. And I think 
it's 11 to 12 hours, which honestly seemed like a lot. Like when I first saw that, I was like, oof, that hasn't really decreased too much since like the 1970s. (laughs) But I make food multiple times a day, every day. Mm -hmm. And then I added on like three hours for household chores just throughout the week, Mm -hmm. which seems reasonable. I think that's a good estimation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm now interested. Maybe I'll I'll record it this week, (laughs) Friday to Friday, see what happens. Yeah. I did an hour and 15 minutes for cooking each and every day is what I okay. put, which I think is a is a little generous. I've been trying to get into meal prepping mm-hmm. to like get that time down, especially before the master's program starts. So I've been doing like mass batches of food and then That's freezing so them and, and stuff. So yeah, really this helps. past week, it was probably over 12 hours, but hopefully in the long term, hopefully the upcoming weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to tell you the story of one woman and how her invention changed dishwashing forever. Do you have a dishwasher? I do, yeah. You do? Nice. Do you? No. And I haven't had one pretty much ever, like in any of my apartments since moving out. Do you find that that takes a lot of time after you cook something? Well, Jeff does all the dishes. Oh, <laughs> so we have, really a, nice. we have a system where if I, whoever cooks, the other does the dishes. And I typically cook. And he typically does the dishes. It and sounds like you have the better perfect. deal. Yeah. <laughs> In my opinion, totally. He says he likes doing the dishes. And like, frankly, I'm a better cook. So he gets better food. And then <laughs> that does the dishes, which he doesn't mind. because He just throws on a podcast like Dietetics After Dark. <laughs> okay. So the woman who invented the dishwasher. Josephine Cochran was a wealthy housewife in the 1860s and 1870s, and she would often throw fancy house parties using her fine china that dated, apparently, back to the 1600s. So, really good stuff. After one such event, the servants were washing the dishes by hand, and apparently one of them chipped one of her fine china plates causing Josephine to proclaim in frustration, if nobody else is going to invent a dishwashing machine, I'll do it myself. It kind of made me laugh because no one's putting their fine china in the dishwasher, I don't think. (laughs) Anyways, like you hand wash that stuff. And even though she's a woman, she's an inventor, she sounds pretty groundbreaking for her time. Based on that story, she sounds uh, kind of mean. (laughs) (laughs) I've never met her, but just sounds a little not so nice. Anyways, Josephine did invent a dishwasher in her backyard, which is pretty freaking cool. And it was a very good one. She was able to patent it. And there were a couple of models ahead of hers, but hers was the very first one to use water pressure as the main method of cleaning. So other ones had had like sponges and things like that, um, a lot of moving parts, and they never worked very well, but hers Mm -hmm. used water pressure and it was pretty effective. So when Josephine's husband died in 1883, she was only 45, and she was left to handle his numerous debts with very little cash. And so she actually went through with developing the dishwasher and founding the Garris Cochran Manufacturing Company, which later became part of KitchenAid. Oh, that's my dishwasher. (laughs) KitchenAid, nice! Well, I have a bone to pick with her because our (laughs) water pressure ain't that great. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. Uh, Okay. Using a dishwasher is estimated to save 230 hours or nearly 10 days per year based on an estimate of 38 minutes of dishwashing per day. Wow. I know. When I read that, I was like, I think I need to look into getting a dishwasher. (laughs) That's a lot of time. It is a lot of time. So 
Doesn't matter. It's fine. <laughs> Until yeah. he brings it up, you're good. Okay, so while these new technologies did free up time, they also raised standards for cleanliness and culinary prowess and actually kind of served to add to the burden of household work in some ways. So just because time was being freed up within the household, it didn't necessarily mean that this time was being used to relax. And this contributed to the rise of the classic American 1950s housewife ideal. So things like mixers, blenders, mincers, juicers made elaborate cooking more feasible and that raised expectations overall. So while I love a kitchen gadget, it's not all uh, positive women's liberation, amazing stuff. And um, yeah, I think that's a pretty nice segue into your story about a scandalous kitchen utensil. It was. It was perfect. <laughs> that was really interesting. I didn't I barely knew any of that that stuff there. <laughs> cool. So thanks for putting that together. My pleasure. So Sarah, as you said, I'm going to be covering Teflon, which was implemented in a lot of kitchen gadgets back in the day. So the people and communities impacted by Teflon go beyond my scope and ability to fit this within an hour or an hour and a half episode. And there's so many key players and individuals who did make an impact in this case. And the main resource that I, I used was this documentary uh, called The Devil We Know, as well as a couple others to back up some claims and add more context. And those can obviously be found in our show notes. But I would highly recommend checking out that documentary to learn some more about what happened. I am super excited. I don't know too much about this. It's mind-blowing, truly. Okay. Yeah. So way back when, a common kitchen appliance was using deadly toxins in order to function. And that appliance was the refrigerator. So from the 1800s to 1929, refrigerators often contained ammonia, sulfur dioxide, or methyl chloride as refrigerants in order to function and keep our food cool. Many families began leaving their fridges in their backyards after multiple cases of poisonings due to refrigerant leakages during the 1920s. Three of the major companies at this time, they came together to develop a less dangerous refrigerant for the consumer. And these three companies were Frigidaire, General Motors, and DuPont. And you'll want to remember the name DuPont. Do you know where DuPont's come up before? The episode, Low Carb Legacy of Dr. Atkins. Did that it come was up? Where, yes, because that was where the CEOs were putting on weight. <gasps> and <laughs> that, they hired that doctor to come in and put them on a low-carb diet. Oh, my goodness. It can. So I had watched the Dark Waters movie before this, but it completely slipped my mind when you said it in that episode. That's so funny. That's so fascinating. What a good tie-in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, remember the name DuPont, as I'm sure you will. <laughs> So in 1928, two scientists invented Freon, which is a chlorofluorocarbon, or CFC, and Freon was a non-toxic and non-flammable uh, chemical, so at the time it seemed to resolve the issues of these poisonings. And then it wouldn't be known until many years later that CFC actually does destroy our ozone layer, so yeah. it ended up not being all it was meant to be. Okay, so on April 6, 1938, so about 10 years after the invention of Freon, Dr. Roy J. Plunkett, who was a chemist, was experimenting with gases in the lab trying to develop a new refrigerant. To his team's surprise, one of the samples turned into a waxy white solid, or as we like to call it, a plastic. Hmm. And we now know this to be called polytetrafluoroethylene, or PTFE. 
How crazy. You're playing with gases in a lab and one just turns into a plastic? Mm -hmm. Can you imagine? (laughs) No, I can't. It was extremely innovative. So they obviously, they were like, we need to test the properties of this. So even though this refrigerant experiment was a bust, it did turn out that this solid substance had a lot of great properties, which were heat resistance, it was unreactive, and it wouldn't stick to anything. Wow. Yes. Happy accident. For sure. Uh, And before this component was ever used on pots and pans, it had another role, and that was in the development of nuclear weapons. Because of its inert or and unreactive properties, it was perfect for keeping uranium hexafluorides contained when creating bombs during the Manhattan Project. So it was used to seal like the pipes and it was coating the valves and essentially just holding the uranium in place. Hmm. In 1941, PTFE resin was patented, and in 1945, it was trademarked as Teflon. In the 1950s, a French engineer named Marc Grégoire figured out how to bind this slippery substance to aluminum, giving birth to the first nonstick pan. Mm. He and his wife, Colette, began selling these pans, and in 1956, they founded Tefal, or as we like to call it in North America, Tefal. <laughs> Do you have any cool. Tefal pans? No, I've never heard of that in my life. Really? Tefal? Is, it's oh, a... I will bet you at least one of your pans is Tefal. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm going to Google we it. We have multiple of them. They sell them everywhere. Oh, yeah. I probably do have one of these. (laughs) Okay, so it's important in the story to remember that Teflon is the overarching brand name used to describe the synthetic chemicals that it contains. And one of these other chemicals is perfluorooctanoic acid, PFOA, or C8. And I'm going to call it C8 moving forward just to distinguish it from PTFE since all of the P acronyms can get a little bit confusing. So right now we have PTFE, which is a slippery, unreactive substance, then C8, which was another man-made chemical developed in 1947, used in the process of creating PTFE. The active component in C8 is fluorine and is called a surfactant as it reduces the surface tension between two things. Yeah, so PTFE is technically trademarked as Teflon, but in order to create PTFE, you need C8. Yes, that would make sense. So PTFE like technically is Teflon, but Teflon is also the brand name used to describe the combination of these things that make it good for a pan. Exactly. I hope that makes sense. I think it makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So yeah, PTFE Mm -hmm. is Teflon and -hmm. then C8 is needed, I think, to bind it to the aluminum. Okay. Perfect. Okay, so very small amounts of C8 are found within the actual kitchen products, as most of it burns off during the manufacturing process. However, a study done in the U.S. found that 99% of Americans have C8 (gasps) in their blood. Oh my gosh. Yes. And every single baby born in an industrialized country is born with this compound already in their bodies. Okay. And I'm going to explain why this is, what this means, and what we can do moving forward because there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm like learning about a new part of myself <laughs> that I didn't know existed. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's jump into this true story. It's 1948 in Parksburg, West Virginia, where there's a DuPont Teflon manufacturing plant. At this point, Teflon was already being used in many products, and that's other than in the atomic bombs as well. And it was 
in stain-free couch and carpet protection sprays, paint and metal finishings on both cars and airplanes. It was in nail polish. It was in the waterproof like Gore-Tex rain gear. And I mean, the list goes on. It was in a lot of places because it was such a cool, useful thing at the time. Right. Then, of course, it has also been used to create the nonstick, non-reactive, water and oil-resistant layer commonly used to coat frying pans. All right, so we're in 1981 now. So a couple years later, and 50 women that are working at the Parkersburg plant are suddenly all removed from their positions and reassigned to other roles. They are given very little reasoning other than the fact that working directly with C8 might be considered dangerous to pregnant women, specifically any unborn fetuses. So of eight DuPont employees that were pregnant, two children were born with uh, facial differences. So both had eyes that were somewhat just malformed. And then one of the children was born with only one nostril. And I I got my hands on one of the medical documents that highlighted the outcomes of the eight children who were born to DuPont employees. And on this document in the left-hand corner, It actually specified the amount of C8 in parts per million that were found in each of these babies' blood. And the lowest was 0.013 ppm. Okay. So it was present in all of their bodies. Wow, okay. Mm -hmm. So Sue Bailey is the mother of Bucky Bailey, who's one of the two children who was born with these physical differences. Um, DuPont implied that Sue, so Bucky's mom, was to blame And despite her obvious outrage, she continued to work there for the insurance money and to support her family. Wow. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's awful. It really, really is. Throughout her pregnancy, she had direct contact with the chemicals, and part of her job was actually to take the water that was discharged from the C8 and to pump it out into the Ohio River. Bucky was born with a higher C8 level in his blood than was found in his mother's blood. So obviously what they had found, like DuPont had found, was accurate. And as a child, he required 30 surgeries to help him with his breathing and with his eyesight. And one of these surgeries, it's so sad, they had to insert a balloon into his forehead to stretch the skin so that they could use it to restructure his nose. And apparently Uh it gave him like really intense migraines and they were obviously extremely painful. So... He really, really did have some, like he suffered quite a bit, I guess, as a child. But Mm -hmm. despite being in and out of the the hospital as a kid, he does claim to have had a really happy upbringing. And he also says that his family was all very supportive in the process. And it it wasn't until he was about 18 or so that he started really wanting an answer for what had happened to him. And we're going to come back to Bucky a little bit later in this story as he does end up doing some really amazing stuff. Wow. All right. So... The men at the Teflon plant were assured that there was no risk to them working in this plant, so they continued doing their day-to-day. And at this point, DuPont was producing about 2 million pounds of Teflon a year from this specific Parkersburg plant. Now, 2 million pounds of product surely produces quite a lot of waste, and it definitely did. DuPont made an agreement with a farmer by the name of Wilbur Tennant to purchase some of his land with the promise that they would only use it for non-hazardous waste. Mm -hmm. However, shortly after the purchase, many fish and other animals started dying on the Tennant farm. Tennant's cows began being born with physical Mm -hmm. issues such as cloudy eyes and black teeth, and eventually his entire herd died. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. The whole herd. 
the whole herd. So like his whole livelihood. Wow. He claimed to have tried to work with a number of vets, but that none of them really wanted to get involved. And in 1998, he decided to contact a corporate defense lawyer named Rob Billet to see if he would help with the situation. Now, if you've seen the movie Dark Waters, Billet, haven't. you haven't? It's a, no. it's a really good movie. But Billet is played by Mark Ruffalo. I love Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, he's great. So if you do see it, you'll at least know who we're talking about. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, and this this man, Billet, is really the one who kind of exposed it all, or he helped all, like, this community expose it all. I'm shocked we're at 1998 right now. I didn't realize. I felt very far removed from all this. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I won't say anything else because I don't want to spoil. I don't well, want to spoil I've, it. I've already learned I've got C8 in my blood. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. It, it's a wild story, and it's one of those ones that I, I, I've heard – I watched the movie when it first came out, like I want to say it was a year or two ago. I heard it, I absorbed it, and then I kind of forgot about it. Ugh. Well, mm-hmm. we're bringing it back. We're bringing it back, and this time I'm not going to forget about it. <laughs> okay, so over the years, Joe Kiger, a resident of Lubeck, West Virginia, which is a seven-minute drive from Parkersburg, I checked, he started <laughs> getting more and more suspicious of what was happening in his city. So in the year 2000, this was about 19 years or so after the female DuPont employees were all reassigned to different roles, Joe and his wife Darlene received a letter from the Lubeck Public Water Department mentioning that there was C8 in their water supply coming from the DuPont plant. Hmm. But this letter stated that it was still within safe, um, like limits, it was safe at the current concentration. Joe began picking up on some other weird things that were happening around town. Uh, One of his friend's daughter's teeth went black. His neighbor's dog developed a bunch of tumors. There were a lot of um, sick community members, including a few who had developed um, testicular cancer. And he tried calling the Department of Natural Resources, the health department, and he even spoke to a toxicologist at DuPont, but nobody would give him any information. Wow. Wow. Eventually, he heard about Tenant's Farm and just how some of the cattle there developed black teeth, and he found it very unusual that he also knew some people whose teeth went black. That is so bizarre. Yeah, it's very bizarre. So he decided to contact Rob Billet to see if he could help with the case. Just because he'd been seeing all this stuff around town, he thought that he had some information that he could offer. So after looking more into the facts, Billet asked Joe if he would be willing to help with the case. And like that, in 2001, Joe became the lead plaintiff in a class action lawsuit against DuPont. And this lawsuit included six different water districts and tens of thousands of people. Wow. Mm-hmm. Joe is just a resident? Like he's just uh, an engaged citizen? Yeah. Oh, wow. But he was like one of the key players in that he kind of started piecing together that something wasn't right. Mm -hmm. And he obviously was a key, key component in like pulling this case together with the lawyer and the farmer. Wow. Good for him. And everyone involved. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a really motivational story, although there's a lot of terrible things that happen in it. It's (laughs) kind of shows you like the power in numbers in terms of getting things to change. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Bella's evidence included things such as the fact that DuPont and a company called 3M, who supplied the C8 to DuPont, had done existing research on the chemicals and its effects dating back to the 1960s. Okay, so these studies, done in 1988, indicated links to cancer and changes in DNA, deeming it highly toxic and a known animal carcinogen and a possible human carcinogen. 
Studies done on rats demonstrated health conditions at birth, and in many cases, these included eye abnormalities. Which we've seen Mm -hmm. in those, yeah, okay, wow. So in May of 2000, 3M stopped using C8, which was also used in Scotchgard products. So I don't know if you've ever used Scotchgard, but they had those like fabric protectors, Mm -hmm. um, things for your, your carpet, so that if you spilt on it, you could easily wipe it off. And they stopped using it in the Scotchgard products because of its health implications. And 3M, they promised to phase it out completely by 2002. However, after hearing this, DuPont decided to begin manufacturing their own C8 in Fayetteville, North Carolina. So despite the fact that their supplier, 3M, phased it out for obvious health reasons, DuPont continued to produce and use it. So they had the perfect opportunity to phase it out and find something else, and they didn't take that. Yeah, it sounds like there were many opportunities down the line for Mm -hmm. change that were not taken. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Right away, DuPont wanted to settle this case and offered $343 million to be split among the plaintiffs. How many plaintiffs? Uh, There was, I think it was three, just over 3,000 or so. Okay. Yeah. But the plaintiffs, they all refused to take it, which I think is so cool. It must have been tempting. Mm -hmm. Incredibly (laughs) tempting. They're really clearly very passionate about this, and they know they're on the right side if they're saying no to that. Yeah, and I just think that they probably didn't want to be hushed for something that is obviously happening, not just to them or their families, but the entire community and Mm -hmm. surrounding communities. Like, this affected six water districts that were known at this time, that were, like, engaged in the lawsuit at this time. Yeah, wow. Yes. Okay, so instead, what they decided to do was put together a team called the C8 Science Panel to help determine whether C8 is linked to any human disease. And if you can remember so far, like most of the studies that were done were um, by the manufacturers on rodents. Yes. So if the panel could prove a link, that meant that each plaintiff could sue DuPont individually for personal injury. However, if the panel could not find a link, it was incredibly likely that a jury would find DuPont not guilty and they would essentially never be able to be charged for the same thing again. So Mm. the stakes were incredibly high. Yeah. In order to identify an association between a contaminant and a disease, I'm sure you know this, but you need a massive amount of people to participate. Mm -hmm. So the C8 Science Panel put out advertisements for volunteers offering up to $400 to anyone who's willing to have their blood tested for C8 and to give the panel access to their medical records. Now, it's estimated that around 70,000 people gave their blood, making this, this was the largest human health study in terms of scope in the world. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay, so clearly there was great public concern at this point. If 70,000 people... Public concern, the fact that they used some money to get participants. So one of the big things that they said was that uh, I think that this took place in October, November. So it was right around Christmas present buying time. And so Mm -hmm. offering $400 could be beneficial to some families. So um, if you have both parents go have their blood tested, that's $800. That's That's a great Christmas. Yeah. Makes sense. And it's a pretty low investment on their part, just blood tested and access to medical records. But still, 70,000 people is so impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mean to take away from that. That is incredibly impressive. Okay. So it took the panel over seven years, but in 2012, they came back determining that there was, in fact, a link between C8 and six known diseases. 
These included kidney and testicular cancer, thyroid disease, ulcerative colitis, preeclampsia, and high blood cholesterol. And as I said, this meant that anyone residing in the area who experienced any of these diseases with a link to C8 could sue DuPont for personal injury, and over 3,500 people did. Wow, I'm going to get a percentage here. 3,500 out of 70,000. Uh, 5%. 5%. 5% of the population had those had one of those six conditions. Okay, but I think that there may have been, like they had to prove it, correct? They had to prove it in court. Right. And they had to go through the whole legal proceeding. There mm-hmm. also had to be, I think, potentially linked to C8. So they had to measure the blood and maybe do some additional testing. So these were the number of people that wanted to move forward with a lawsuit and potentially extra testing, I'm guessing. And yeah, had enough of a case to make it hold up in court, probably. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. And that's also not to say that those 70,000 people partook in the testing because they wanted to sue. They just thought it was the right thing to do at the time, so they did it. They did it for science. Yeah, the sake Mm -hmm. of science. A 2017 news article published by Reuters and written by Arathi Nair confirmed that DuPont and Camours Company, which is a new one, uh, and it's actually the sister company created by DuPont, they agreed to $671 million in settlements to resolve the $3,550 personal injury claims. So I guess that's the exact number. Wow. Yes. But that's huge. all of the CEOs and employees who allowed this to happen for as long as it did, they continue to walk free. And this really got me thinking because when does this happen? It made me think about the 1982 Chicago Tylenol poisonings where... The medication was swapped out for cyanide, and it killed seven people. And as we know, this case, it remains unsolved, but had they caught the person who did it, they would never let them walk free. And that was seven people. Mm -hmm. The effects of C8 affected people globally, and many deaths and health effects and stuff can be attributed to the decisions that were made at DuPont, and nobody was arrested. Yeah, that's alarming, especially since the studies started coming out in the 80s. What year was it when they moved the 50 women to different roles? I think it was 81. That was 81. So in mm-hmm. 81, they had enough information to transfer 50 people out of their current jobs. That's not easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a that's a huge action for a company to take. Yeah. And their study started in the 60s. So they had research dating back to the 60s in this court case. Wow. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Anyways, <laughs> in addition to these settlements, DuPont was fined by the Environmental Protection Agency a total of $16.5 million for failing to report the health risks linked to C8. But mm-hmm. at the time, DuPont was selling approximately $25 billion worth of products every single year. So it was hardly a slap on the wrist. Yeah. And somebody in the Devil We Know documentary is quoted asking if $16.5 million seems fair for contaminating humanity, which I feel like really put things in perspective for me. (laughs) Yeah. At the start, you said 99% of us, like everyone in North America or everyone in the world. So they said 99% of Americans, but then um, I also saw some information saying that when they, they did some tests globally to see how how many people had C8 in their blood, it was almost impossible to find somebody who didn't. And they actually, in order to find 
like clean blood, like blood that was clean of C8, they actually had to take samples that were like harvested and saved from the Korean War. So before all of this happened. Mm-hmm. Wow. This is yeah. wild. <laughs> it is so wild. Okay. So DuPont did end up agreeing to phase out C8. And by 2015, 2015, that's where we're at right Six now. Six years ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a manufacturing ban on C8. So now nobody can create it anymore as of 2015. Wow. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh but since gosh. it's virtually impossible to destroy, a lot of this remains in the environment and likely in our blood. Yeah. As I mentioned, DuPont created their sister company called uh, ChemWars. And I'm assuming they did this to distance themselves from the lawsuits a little bit. Makes sense mm-hmm. from a business perspective. ChemWars is now one of the largest fluorochemical manufacturers in the world. And Teflon continues to make its products to this day, but they found another chemical to use. And that chemical is called Gen X. I feel like there was a business strategy to this because when you Google Gen X, the chemical is not the first thing that pops up. Oh. So I don't know if there was some type of strategy there, but yes. Uh, So yeah, so Gen X is manufactured by Chemours and it's a organofluorine compound. Mm -hmm. Uh, Apparently studies have shown similar effects that have been reported in rodent studies, similar to the effects linked to C8 exposure. The chemistry may also affect things like how we metabolize nutrients, which I thought was pretty interesting considering we're nutrition students. Yeah. However, the issue that remains here is that there are very few tests and regulations around bringing a new product to market. So it's not until many years later that these tests and and, um, regulations come into play. That's shocking to me. Okay, Mm -hmm. so there's a new chemical. It's called Gen X. It replaced C8, and that is still... And it's not necessarily any safer than C8 was. No, there haven't been, I guess, enough tests done on it. But based on preliminary research, it seems to have similar effects in rodent populations. Okay, this is... So we did our episode, episode two, about azodicarbonamide and how, you know, we get scared of certain chemicals in our food. But then you hear stories like this and... Something that is going on a frying pan that billions of people are using every single day mm-hmm. needs to be t- tested just as rigorously as our food. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just like I'm I totally I hate food fear and all of those things. But then you read a story like this and it's hard not to be like, OK, well, I already have this chemical in my it's like C8 is probably in my blood. Mm-hmm. It's just I, I see where that fear comes from. Absolutely. And I think like the one thing to come from this is to just, again, be an informed consumer and just kind of know what's going on. What's the most current research if you can. And yeah, it is tough. It is tough because I, even in myself, like going over this information again, I was like, oh, shoots, I really do need to replace my pots and pans. Totally. I'm going to go check my pans right after this. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I have one in mind that I use all the time that I'm like, it's pretty nonstick. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but before we get into some things that we can do, I, I did just want to give like a little bit of a follow-up on some of the key players that I mentioned like mm-hmm. throughout the story, because I feel like that's important. So Wilbur Tennant, who is the farmer whose land was being used as a waste site, uh, he received a settlement for an undisclosed amount in 2001. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he was diagnosed with cancer, and in 2009, he passed away from a heart attack at the age of 67. 
That's young. His wife, Sandra, then passed away of cancer in 2011, so just two years later. Wow. Um, Yeah, but without Tennant's story, testimony, and his motivation for justice, uh, this case likely would not have been, it would not have picked up as much traction as it did. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, they did lose their livelihood, but in turn, he really helped get justice for so many people. Yeah. And then Joe... Joe Kiger, the lead plaintiff in the case against DuPont, um, he has some of his own health issues. He has had to have nine stints put in and um, has also had a heart attack. Uh, I couldn't find out much information about what he's up to recently or how much he received as a settlement. But as of, I think it was like the 2000s, he was a phys ed teacher in Lubeck, West Virginia. So I think he's still doing that. Without his suspicion and efforts, it's possible that the connections in this case would not have come to light until very much later. So he potentially saved a lot of people in being yeah. suspicious and bringing this to light. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And then we have Sue and Becky Bailey, who are also very inspirational players in this, as they've dedicated a lot of their lives to figuring out what happened at the Teflon plant and in informing consumers about the dangers of C8. Uh, they mm-hmm. both appear in the documentary, The Devil We Know, and Bucky actually plays himself in the movie Dark Waters, next to those huge names like Mark Ruffalo and um, Anne Hathaway. Cool. Yeah. And I, I did not know that he was not an actor until the very end. I was, my mind was blown. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Uh, So DuPont claimed that Bucky's physical conditions at birth were not statistically significant and could not be directly linked to C8. I couldn't find any information on a settlement amount for him or for his mother, Sue. And unfortunately, Sue was diagnosed with thyroid cancer following the C8 science panel blood tests, and she seems to have passed away late last year. Aww. Yeah. Uh, But Bucky is married, and he has two children now. There was a 50% chance that his kids would be born with these same physical conditions, but it turns out that they weren't passed down genetically. So Mm. they have a healthy, happy, beautiful family. Of course, the effects of C8 were more detrimental to those living near or working at the DuPont plant. However, as we know, the effects have kind of trickled down to the consumer level, and this is likely through some industrial waste, but also through some of the products that we purchase. Mm. So what can we do? Good question. Simply put, we can avoid nonstick cookware and consider replacing any pans from before the early 2000s as these may contain C8 residues. Some alternative cookware options include those made of ceramic, aluminum, stainless steel, cast iron, or copper, and that's without nonstick coatings. Anything with nonstick does deserve a little bit more research. Not saying that they're all bad necessarily, but definitely... Do your own cost analysis. Uh, mm. And then also weigh out the pros and cons for the other types of pans that I just mentioned as well. Because, for instance, uh, uncoated aluminum pans um, can also kind of leach into your food too. So it's just good to kind of know what you're buying. Hmm. If it's not obviously stated, you can also call the companies that manufacture the pans just to see what types of products they use. Then you can check for local fish advisories and don't purchase or consume contaminated fish, which was one that I didn't even think of. Wow, me either. I wouldn't have thought of that. And then lastly, contact your health department to inquire about water contamination levels. We in Ontario, Canada likely have a little bit less to worry about, uh, but I did check the government of Canada's website and we do have a maximum acceptable concentration of C8 in our drinking water, meaning that it is still possible. And the maximum amount in Canada is 0.0002 milligrams per liter in our Canadian drinking water. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I guess like the take-home message here is just to continue to be an informed consumer. Yeah. And I feel like even just by listening to this episode, you're doing exactly that. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a more informed consumer thanks to that story you just told. Oh, I know. It's an intense one. It is an intense one. Huh? Well, that was really well done. Great job. I learned so much. I will be immediately checking my pants. (laughs) Same here. That's the thing about being an informed consumer. Like there is this line between being unnecessarily scared of, you know, ingredients you can't pronounce that are totally harmless, being an informed consumer. And there are risks when we introduce new chemicals. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't have an answer. (laughs) Yeah. And it's tough because when it's a new chemical and there's no studies on it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's better than the the last one that was used. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For sure. Huh. So, yeah. Okay. Well, sorry if that wasn't that positive. I know. <laughs> no, it was. It was a really good story. And there was kind of a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say so. Good. A lot of people did end up getting some justice, at mm-hmm. least. And yeah, there are a lot sure. of people that were involved in this and others that weren't. Even Mark Ruffalo, actually, they they vouch and, like, are help helping push these kind of, kind of cases forward. That's awesome. Yeah. So it is interesting to see. Cool. Okay. Well, to get us ready for next week, I want to know, and it's kind of a weird question, but do you have any experiences with a multi-level marketing scheme (laughs) or a pyramid scheme? Uh, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say this publicly, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And not just from buying from them. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I was a part of a company a couple of years ago called Stella and Dot, and it's a jewelry company. And I mean, at the time, you don't really think of these things as being MLMs. But um, yeah, I sold sold jewelry for a period of time and hosted little parties and things like that. Um, And I honestly, I found it so much fun. And then Mm -hmm. there was a point that I hit where I was like, it doesn't feel good anymore. Because it wasn't my own product. I couldn't vouch for the prices or how the jewelry was made 100%. Mm-hmm. So I started to feel like a little bit icky about it. Right. Aww. And then um, then I stopped, stopped, stopped doing it. <laughs> Aw. See, don't be embarrassed, though, because they're des- like, they're so appealing. I can see why people want to sell them, have a little side hustle, and, and they're, I don't know, they're kind of designed to suck people in. That's the whole point. No, for sure. And I, I do think that it's part of like, why I'm here today, because it really did make me realize that I wanted to own my own business and Mm. to be able to either offer a service or a product that can genuinely help people that I have control over. Yeah. Oh, that's so nice. See, Mm -hmm. happy, happy, uh, happy ending. Yes, definitely. And I I do love Tupperware and lots of (laughs) other MLM type businesses. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I don't have any personal experience with them other than like being gifted things from Avon, let's say, or Pampered Chef or Epicure. Do you know Epicure? It's like a spice company. Okay. I was going to ask if that was the, um, like the essence, like the oils. No, that's, um, something living. Okay. I don't know. I can't remember, but I do have a lot of messages on Facebook <laughs> from people from high school and things like that being like, hey, do you want to buy, like my Facebook page? I'm selling this. Yeah, I got a lot of Arbon. Arbon oh, ones. Oh, yeah, my, lots of Arbon. Yeah, lots of DMs. 
Well, if you don't know what we're talking about and you don't know any of these names, we're going to be talking about it next week. So excited. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dietetics After Dark. You can find all the references and materials used to put this podcast together in our show notes at dieteticsafterdark.com. This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe to our show. For more information, follow us on Instagram at dieteticsafterdark. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at dieteticsafterdark at gmail.com. This podcast was recorded and edited by Earworm Radio. We highly recommend their services for all of your podcasting needs. You can learn more about them at earwormradio.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.